If you uh, missed last week, we're beginning our tour of the book of James, and I don't know how long that this is going to take us. Uh, my plan today was to actually cruise through the first 18 verses, and God had a different plan. So we're going to do that a little differently. But if you missed last weekend, I'm going to encourage you to grab that, because it, that podcast, that message, we profiled James and, well, Jacob, which you'll figure that out when you listen to it, but in order to get a handle on why his book is so important to us. And so um, along with the next few weeks, those things combined, they're going to set up everything that we're talking about in the coming weeks. It's going to be kind of like the frame around all of it. And so if you miss any part of that, uh, you're going to miss something that's important. So I encourage you to run out there and grab that. So uh, as we're beginning, I've got some assistants, and they're going to be bringing you around a little treat. Now, my big vision plan was, you know, I would love to just like have toast for everybody this morning. You know, since the ladies are gone, it'd be easy breakfast, right? The dads wouldn't have to worry about that. Uh, my plan ended up being uh, bits of sourdough bread. So, <laughs> But there's a reason, which you'll find out in a second. But this bread, by the way, if you're gluten-free, this is actually an option for you as well. And I need to give you some explanation just in case you're hardcore gluten-free. But it's a slow-rise sourdough bread that most gluten-free folks can enjoy. And it's actually delicious. You wouldn't even know it if I hadn't told you that. So now you know. And so if you're off bread and you're off carbs today, the Lord gives you permission to eat this. Um, (laughs) See, because next week I've been avoiding sugar and I'm totally eating a donut in the name of the Lord. So it's all good. So um, this is what we kicked off with last week. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. And I had a lot to say about this, but there were a couple things that I didn't mention that I just want to start off with today. I think they're important. Uh, This opening statement sets the tone and the authority in his letter. And we discussed that at length. But when James starts by describing himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not just making a humble statement, although it is a very humble statement. He could have said a lot of things. He could have said, by the way, I'm Jesus' half-brother, so you so you like kind of need to listen to this, right? Or he could have said, you know what, dude, uh, my church in Jerusalem is the bomb. And by the way, I wrote this for you to listen to. But no, he doesn't say any of those things. He just says, I'm a humble servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this isn't just a humble statement. About himself. He's actually implying something really important that we might miss here. The proximity of the words here in this sentence of him saying God the Father and then the Lord as a title for Jesus forges a link in the mind of his readers, by the way, who were mostly Jewish. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to affirm this divine lordship of Yeshua or Jesus. He's trying to tell these guys, listen, I want to start my letter off right at the very beginning and let you know who is in charge of me and why I'm writing. And so that's what he does. And remember, these Jewish believers that he's writing to, he wants to leave no questions in their mind uh, about Yeshua or Jesus' place in God's plan. But these Jewish believers, he also says something here that they're scattered, right? They're scattered throughout the world. And this sentence also links to that lordship statement that he shares at the very beginning. Because he wants to tell these guys something, and it's this in a nutshell. James writes with the vision of an Israel reunited under the kingship of Yeshua as Messiah. And so 
Obviously, there were other people that were involved in these groups and in these churches. There were proselytes, God-fearers, others that weren't Jewish but were a part of this ancient Jewish community, especially out in the greater world as you kind of move outward from Jerusalem. And so if any of them had become believers in Jesus, then they surely were intended as recipients of James' letter. Uh, There's an author and scholar named J.K. McKee, and he suggests something that I think is cool that I want to share with you guys today. He He suggests that this vision is one of the things that links James with Paul's writings. And lots of times we hear that Paul and James are as, at odds as writers or as apostles. I don't believe that that's true, but here's what he says about it. He says, both James and the apostle Paul had the perspective that the salvation of Israel proper would lead to that of the nations and that the salvation of the nations would then culminate in the grand salvation of Israel. So, setting the tone again. He knows who his audience is. That's who he's writing to. So, as we move forward, a lot of people look at the book of James and they're like, you know what? This is just kind of a collection of sermons or they're these little just kind of nuggets. You know, maybe these would be great blog posts someday for James. Like, if he were here now, each of these would be like a little blog post for him. Um, So, scholars have viewed these things as like just a collection of writings or musings on various subjects. And if you read through it, it can seem that way, especially if your Bible has all those nifty little headlines, you know, that the writers put in there for you just to make it easier for you. James talks about trials, you know, those kinds of things. So you look at those, and you're like, oh, okay, that's what that's about. And, it, and the way that James talks, like he wanders around from subject to subject and then circles back to the other subjects. And then he goes over here again, and then he comes back. A lot like me, actually, but... Um, He wanders around from one thought to another thought, only to circle back to these original ideas, usually from a different direction. And recent scholarship suggests that James had really two resources that he pulled a lot of his book from. And they were uh, the book of Proverbs and the other wisdom books, and then the teachings of Jesus, specifically his sermon on the mount. And so as we go through this book, any time that that comes up, I'm going to try and point it out to you guys. And we'll see that here in just a second. I read another thing this week that I thought was interesting that said that other than the Gospels, James's book has more direct quotations from Jesus than any other book in the New Testament. I thought that was kind of fascinating. So you can do the research on that on your own and see if you can prove that true or false. But I thought that was cool. So uh, this document may be made up of like all these chunks, but... Ultimately, all of his thoughts are unified, okay? And that's the point I want to get across today. There's a reoccurring theme in this letter that goes throughout this letter that James really wants us to understand. There's one unifying theme, and it's this, that perseverance and obedience need to happen when we're in the midst of trials. And so we're just going to make it through verse 4 today, starting with verse 2, James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers. And by the way, the words that are used there, ladies, you're involved in that too. It could be just my brothers. It could be brothers and sisters. There's a lot going on there. So, everybody, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So most of us, how many of you are familiar with this verse? You've seen it before. Yeah, right? We've all seen this verse. So, It would seem that whatever these trials were or whatever these tough times that these believers were going through, they were facing, that's the whole reason that he's writing to them. And so what types of trials is he referring to? Well, the first thing I want to point out after I get a little drink here. The first thing that I want to point out is that the language and the construction of the original language suggests that the trials that they were facing were not of their own making. 
that these hazards that they'd incurred were beyond their control and that these were increasing for the Jewish and Gentile believers in Messiah. And most of us know, like, if you look at that period of time, there were a lot of things in play. Early believers increasingly found themselves the focus of ridicule, scorn, and persecution. In fact, in Acts eleven nineteen, it specifically refers to persecution that occurred after Stephen was killed. And if you remember, Stephen went out there and he was busting out the gospel and everybody got mad. And so they start picking up rocks and they're throwing rocks at him and killing him. And even in the midst of them killing him, he's still giving glory to God, right? And so after that happened, that was kind of like a catalyst for all of this persecution. And in addition, we know that in these early days, the Jewish believers in in, uh, Jesus continued to worship in their synagogues. They continued to live thoroughly Jewish lives at first, But this created this tension, right, within that traditional uh, system of Judaism. And so finally, they were pushed out of the synagogues and into smaller groups and homes, and they met with people elsewhere. So meanwhile, we talked about this last week, but the ruling of the Jerusalem Council, which James was a big part of, opened up the door for Gentile believers to come out of this world of idolatry and paganism and come into this new faith that they would find in Jesus as a part of what was going on with these Messianic Jewish believers. We talked about that a lot last week. But, and this is hard for us to understand maybe in our world, where if you make a choice like where you go to church may not necessarily matter that much when you're shopping and you're choosing the place that you would go to eat at a restaurant or whatever it is. Your church choice or your choice of religion probably is not going to impact those places. Uh, You're not going to be refused that precious corned beef at the deli counter at Hy-Vee just because you go to church here, right? They're not going to say, I'm sorry, you know what, you associate with those weirdos over at Desperation Church, so we're not serving you today. However, in this world, those kinds of things were a reality. I mean, your church, your home, your family, your work, they were all kind of in this little contained environment. And so... This whole separation caused tension for these Gentile believers, too, because they were trying to separate themselves from their families and from idolatry and the things that were happening there. It didn't mean they didn't love their families. They were just trying to get away from those things and follow the things that uh, James and the other apostles had put there for them. So this tension started to grow. It would affect where you lived. It would affect where you would shop. It would affect where you worked. All of these things would be affected. Within the Roman world, also, Christians were considered to be trouble, right? They were linked with revolution and all kinds of controversy. And so we even see that play out more so uh, in the story of Jesus, right? And everything that happened with him. That was kind of the catalyst for all of that and the uprisings and different things that would happen. But what's interesting, and I said I would point this out, James's words also echo this warning that Jesus gave us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10. Both of these groups, the Jewish folks and the Gentile folks who believed in Jesus, had this common bond. That this choice to follow Yeshua as Messiah came with a real cost. And this real cost immediately impacted their day-to-day lives. It was like, as soon as it happened, boom, things were different. It's also not difficult to think that this mix of Jewish and Gentile believers continued to be a struggle for them. In fact, we know it was because we see it in Scripture. 
They're trying to figure out how to do this thing together. These swarthy Gentiles coming in. We do it this way. This is how it's supposed to be, right? They're trying to figure out how to worship the Messiah together. So while James writes to primarily Jewish believers, Paul's over here on the other side writing to primary Gentile believers. And both of them address the reality that perseverance and obedience through trials is for all believers, right? It's something that we're all going to face no matter where we come from, no matter uh, what our origin is or what people we're from. Uh, when we're with Jesus, right? He said it himself, that we're going to face trials. And it's perseverance and obedience in the midst of those that form and shape our character and show the world who we really are. So in the coming weeks, I want you to remember that every subject that James addresses today and onward is all about how to live out, how to like live out that faith and how to do it, like how practically to do that thing in the midst of hard times and in the midst of trials. And so Paul said something very similar to James to the Gentile believers, and most of you have heard this verse before too. It's in Romans five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? Ow, that really hurts. Yeah, I'm so hungry. Woo! Oh, I just got fired. Yes! Although some of us probably would do that. (laughs) But when trials come, do we rejoice? Not only that, but we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So what Paul is saying here, and what I believe Jesus and James are also saying, is as bad as trials, as afflictions or tribulations can be, God usually does have an important purpose for the lives of those in his people. Even though we may not know what those are, especially at that time. And a really great example of this whole thing is the sourdough bread I just gave you. It's okay, don't worry. So that bread... Was it delicious? Was I right? Yes? Yeah, it was. Absolutely. That's from the Justice Drugstore in Smithville. So if you want to go check that out, that's where it came from. A little commercial there. <laughs> so sourdough bread is my preferred bread. Just so you know, in case you're ever wanting to give me a gift of bread. <laughs> anyway, um, sourdough bread makes the best toast. I love like egg and cheese sandwiches on sourdough bread. There's something about that combination that for me, it's like, oh yeah, this is the bomb. Like slather lots of butter on that bad boy and you put it there on the griddle and you get it nice and toasty. You're glad I didn't talk about this when we were fasting, right? And then you put the eggs on there like in a really thin layer and then you got to put cheese on both sides too. And it's not that American cheese stuff. You got to go with like a really nice like cheddar or maybe a jalapeno jack if you're feeling crazy. I love it. I love sourdough bread. But did you know that sourdough bread is fascinating because the whole way that sourdough bread came to be and the whole way to make it is you actually capture bacteria in the dough. You capture bacteria. So the whole process uh, makes the bread rise and makes it become this soury, delicious treat that it's supposed to be. And it's likely that the first batch of sourdough bread was a result of an accidental contamination of bacteria in the dough. And then everybody's like, well, that's really good. We should keep doing that. But here's the funny thing. According to Rob Dunn, he's a PhD biologist at North Carolina State University. He's also an author. He says, for example, the bacteria responsible for sourdough bread 
originally came from rodent feces. Any sourdough you eat has that history, yet it's all perfectly safe and delicious. Have a nice day. So the delicious result of sourdough bread that we got to enjoy together today owes its beginnings to rodent poop. So I share that with you just so you know that even gross things have a purpose in the lives of believers, right? Trials, hardships, life challenges, all of those things, folks, have a purpose in us. God wants to use those things. And in these seemingly difficult situations, even if you're dealing with one right now, it has a purpose. So don't just blankly dismiss trials because God uses them to produce something great and something useful in each one of us. How many of you have ever been through a hard time? Okay, some of you guys, you're due. I'm just saying. Because Jesus promises us that it's going to happen. Some of these things that happen in our lives are doubtlessly intended to prepare believers for what's to come in the future. And I can just tell you time and time again, I would go through something in my life, and it would be hard. I'm like, God, why in the world is this happening? What did I do? The truth of the matter is, I didn't do anything, anything wrong. God allowed this trial to come in my life because he wanted to develop something in me and in my character so that later on down the road, there would be this moment that he could shine. That he would have glory. I mean, if you've been through something, and then you meet someone else that's been through the same thing, you have this common bond, and there's a way to minister in that moment that some other person wouldn't have if they've never been through that same thing. And I believe that God does this. He forms us in these ways for that purpose. But you should know that this is just, it's more than just scraping by in the midst of trials, okay? Because all of these guys use these words. Uh, It's more than just getting by in the hard spots, but we're being challenged. And so, well, there's our sourdough bread. Trials are not just about surviving, but thriving. When we go through a trial, we're not just supposed to survive and scrape through it. We're supposed to thrive. Paul says, rejoice in your sufferings. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. James says, count it all joy. So what is the deal here? Are we supposed to like fake it? Because in the history of the churches that I've gone to, that's what people would do. You would never know that such and such as marriage is totally trashed or this would be happening because nobody talked about it. How you doing, brother? I've got the joy of the Lord and it's my strength. Right? Hey, man, what's going on? Like really going on in your life? I'm blessed. Not that that's not true. So what's the deal here? Are we supposed to fake it? Are we supposed to pretend like we're happy? I don't think so. I believe that God wants us to be authentic. And scripture over and over and over again shows this to us. Shows us, call on the elders when you're sick and have them anoint you with oil. I mean, it's over and over throughout scripture that we need each other. We need God and we need each other. And that we need to be authentic in this thing. It's not about being fake. It's about supporting each other. Calling the elders for prayer and those kinds of things. So James and Paul, neither one... They're not teaching us how to fake it. What they're doing, James and Paul, is they're, and even Jesus, they're reminding us that we don't face trials alone. That we have other people, but more importantly, we have God with us, right? Remember what Paul said, we can thrive in trials because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us, given to us in the midst of this trial. We have the Lord's Spirit inside us, and He will strengthen us. And as we endure and we grow, there's a hope 
that's produced. That's what he said back in that verse. There's this hope. And Paul promises us something, and I want to jump back there because I think it's important here. So, remember, he says, we suffer, and that produces this endurance. In other words, you build up your strength. It's like a weightlifter. You don't start out like Farron Hopper back there, bench pressing 700 pounds, right? You've got to work up to that. At least that's what he says. You work up to that. You, you build your endurance. And that endurance produces character because when you go through something, God shapes other parts of who you are in that. And that character produces hope. But the hope does not put us to shame. Why does he say that? Because that hope that we have, folks, has an object. And it's our Messiah. It's Jesus. He's our hope. Yeshua, our Messiah. Jesus reminds us that we're going to have troubles, but that he has what? He's overcome this world. This world can serve up all the troubles that it wants to. And we'll talk here pretty soon about testing and trials and the difference between those two things. But this world can serve up all the trouble that it wants to. Jesus reminds us, hey guys, I've overcome the world. So if he is your hope, if he is your focus, you'll never be put to shame in the midst of that hope. It's kind of like a garden. Now, most of you know I'm not a yard guy or a garden guy or any kind of a green thumb by any means. I really love those little succulent plants that you can just put in your house and not do anything to. Those are great. But one thing that I do know is that gardens thrive when you spread manure on them. And yards thrive when dogs poop in certain places. It's true. So you're like, why are you telling me this? Just like a garden, okay? When the crap of life is getting sprinkled or in some cases shoveled. Just being real here, guys. When it's getting sprinkled or shoveled, We have to remember that it may stink, but it causes growth in us, just like it does in that garden or in our yard. And we have to hold on to that hope. We have to hold on to Jesus. Eyes on him the whole time. And as we face these trials, our capacity to hold out in the face of difficulty brings things like patience, endurance, fortitude. I had a teacher when I was in high school, and he loved to use the words intestinal fortitude. And he'd be like, and these men, when they would face battle and they would hit the beach in the war, it took real intestinal fortitude. It took guts, right? That's what he's saying. Patience, endurance, intestinal fortitude, steadfastness, and perseverance are all results. These are all character traits that increase in us in the midst of trials, and they're all for a purpose. God's glory. Because when we can speak to that person who's going through the same thing, God is glorified in that. God brought me through this thing, man. I know it's hard for you right now, but listen, this happened to me too. One example that I would share is, you know, there are women within this church that have faced a miscarriage. They've gone through that. That's something that I've personally never gone through. And so I can go and I can try and comfort someone that's in the midst of that. I can pray with them, and those are all good things. But it is nothing like a woman who's gone through that trial and come out on the other side for God's glory and the way that she can come and she can speak and she can pray. And she is uniquely equipped to speak to this moment, to this hurt, to this trial that I will never be able to touch. And I believe that's true for all the trials that we go through, all of the things that we face, everything that's hard. God uses it for his glory. 
all of these character traits when they're increased. It's for God's glory. And so, Peter also speaks on this. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, that he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when James opens this letter with this exhortation or commandment to his readers to preserve under trial or persevere, and then his people, those people spread out across the world, sometimes on the run, sometimes under pressure of persecution, many times facing death, but always hard-pressed on every side. James encourages his readers and us to realize that the one important mark of the Christian life is to trust God rather than ourselves when we're in the midst of something like that, even when life seems unbearably hard to trust God. And if you do that, he says, God will use your trials to make you a more faithful follower of Jesus. So as we wrap this up today, trials should bring out God's best in us, not our worst, because that's a lot of times what happens. God's best should be brought out of us in trials. And he increases in our lives when we face these hard things. And the joy that's promised comes when our dependency on him grows. And so I want to leave you with this thought today. If the book of James is a picture of living out our faith, which we've said several times, then thriving in the midst of trials is the frame around it. And I just want to talk art appreciation with you for just a second. In a gallery, when they put a frame around something, they're making a statement. They're saying, this piece of artwork here, this masterpiece, has value. We put a frame around it because we want to set it apart from everything else that you will see in this room and everything else on the wall. So they're like, here's this thing. It has value, and we're going to frame it because we believe that this thing has value. And the same is true of the book of James. If the book of James is this portrait or this picture, this beautiful masterpiece of how we live out our faith in reality, then thriving in the midst of trials is the frame around it that separates it from everything else. So we have to remember that as we go through this book in the coming weeks. I want to say it one more time plainly. God uses the crap of our lives, folks, to produce something beautiful if we will let him, if we will allow him. He uses anything and everything has a purpose if we will allow him to use it to work. Trials should challenge us not to give up, but to press into Jesus to find the joy that we need. And he promises to be right there with us in the middle of all of it. I will never leave you or forsake you, right? He's going to be there in the midst of that. So if we constantly live our lives reliant on him, God's spirit becomes the driving force in our lives. And ultimately, others notice that. And God's plans and purposes will be accomplished in our lives and on all the earth, which is exactly what he wants from us that his plans and his purposes will be accomplished in our lives and on the entire earth. And that happens when he becomes the driving force in our lives. And often trials are one of the ways that he grows. Would you guys bow your hearts with me? Father God, we love you. And I thank you just that you are faithful. And that even when we're going through the hardest things, God, even when in times where maybe we invite those things into our own lives, you continue to be faithful, and you continue to love us. And so, Father, my prayer today is just that uh, if there's anyone in this room 
that's going through something hard right now. I pray that you would be that hope, that you would be ever-present in their lives, that just that all of us could run to you, God, even if it's the last step that we take because we're exhausted from carrying the weight of life, that we would have enough strength to run to you and to reach out to you and to lean on to you. We need you. Every hour, Father, we need you. God, I pray for the folks that are maybe facing a lot of darkness right now, too, in their lives. I believe there's a reason that this is the message for today. So, Father, I just pray that if there are those that are here today that have lost hope, that you would be that hope for them that there would be a light, that there would be a spark in their lives that they could see that holding on to you is way better than giving up. So God, for those of us that maybe have struggled against trials or question you in the midst of those, I just pray that you continue to remind us gently that you are in control and that you see everything and that even if this whole world falls apart, God, you are faithful, you are strong, you are holy, you are righteous, you are watching, you see everything. And that even in the midst of hard things, you love us. So again, we surrender our lives to you. We say, do what you will inside of us. And all these things are in your name. Amen. Amen.